so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Moving into our culture section, Brent, we've said this is a big... Take three. Okay. Third take Bartlett. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me on this momentous, momentous, <laughs> momentous week of weeks is Brent Leatherwood. Yes, I am. I'm a little bit of a tired puppy, but that's okay. It's it's a it's a good kind of exhaustion because it means you're doing a lot of good work. That's right. So that's, you, yeah. you have been traveling. I do. I remember that now. Well, before you fall asleep. I mean, it was just yesterday. I know, but I don't keep track of your schedule. (laughs) You're the one that texted me saying my schedule was all over the place this week. Well, before you fall asleep on me, let's start talking about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been talking about. So many of you, our listeners, are probably familiar with the reason why this week has been so big for us. And that's because oral arguments were heard in what many have described as a once-in-a-generation case regarding abortion. That is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case out of Mississippi. So we have several pieces on our site related to that case because it is an issue that is near and dear to our hearts that believers should care about because of what God says about life in the womb and what God says about caring for the vulnerable. First off, we have a piece by David Prince, a pastor in Kentucky, and it's titled, The Day I Was 100 Yards Away from the Infamous Jackson Abortion Clinic, Weeping and Praying as Oral Arguments and Dobbs Are Heard. And I don't want to give away the punchline to this story. Like, for instance, why was David Prince 100 yards away from this abortion clinic? Uh, but it is a powerful story about David's encounter with the abortion clinic at the heart of this Dobbs case and how it stirred up his own heart, as he says, to weep and to pray. It just, it made this case more than a a case out there. Instead, it made it personal to him. And I would really encourage you to just take a few minutes, it's not a long piece, to read this and to, to weep and to pray along with him. Well, and we should mention that David is our former chairman of our trustee board here at the ERLC. And I just, I love David's heart in this. And when we were texting about it yesterday and he told me he had kind of put some thoughts down, he's like, yeah, there's a lot of other people out there giving their kind of legal perspective and and policy perspectives. And and those are valuable, but he had a a real kind of personal uh, perspective. And I just love his transparency and the vulnerability that he has. Because if you know David Prince, he's a bit of a bulldog, bit of a gruff bulldog, you know, and, um, 
He's a deep thinker. He wouldn't and, want you to call him a bulldog, though. He'd want you to call him an elephant. Well, right, because he 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 may be, in fact, the world's biggest Alabama <laughs> That's fan. That's right. Uh, but he's a theological bulldog. Right. Let's put it that way. And uh, and so we're. I'm just so thankful that uh, he he just kind of revealed this this side. And, um, and so, yeah, definitely check it out. It's a great piece. And I'm, I'm so thankful that he, he wrote, the, wrote, wrote these wise words down for us. Yeah, we're probably going to say definitely check it out to all the pieces that we are sharing Why would today. you not? If we're highlighting <laughs> right, it, it's exactly. implicit you should check exactly. it out. That's true. That is true. <laughs> but uh, another piece uh, that I want to highlight is by Jeremy Lloyd. And he is a PhD student out of Midwestern in Kansas City. He's a, also a husband and a father. And it's titled, What the Bible Says About Human Life in the Womb. And this is important because this is the theological grounding as to why we as believers care about people and life in the womb. And as our friend Dan Darling says, to quote Dr. Seuss, a person is a person no matter how small. And that's because God has not been silent about life, life that is unseen because it is encased and hidden in a mother's womb for a season or life um, that is on display outside of the womb to show us God's glory. And so drawing from scriptures as they relate to John the Baptist and Jesus and what we see written there and, and David and what he says and, and even Job, Jeremy just draws out how God has been so clear about the personhood of these, these little lives, the tiniest of lives that God has has knit together and that God has purposely created. And so he calls us to take a look at what the Bible says, to believe what the Bible says. And then he calls us as well, though, to be a church that ultimately has a holistic view of life so that we care for the child in the womb, but we also care for the mom who has had an abortion. We care for the mom who is abortion vulnerable, as we say, and and who is considering an abortion. And we, we care for uh, families as a whole. So I encourage you to read this article and just be amazed again at the miracle that is a human life. What I love about this piece is it picks up on a way that we talk to individuals out there in the secular space, um, and, and we try and frame it through the lens of the Imago Day, and just helping the folks that we are engaging, help them understand the implications uh, of what it means for an individual to be made in God's image, and, and how that should inform how they interact with others around them, even those they they disagree. And in many ways, that is very much how we talk to those who are on the pro-choice side of things. We try and get them, or we try and get policymakers, or in the case of this week, try and persuade Supreme Court justices that those individuals who just by timing happen to be in the womb, they are made in the image of God just as much as any of us who are, are walking around and talking. And, and because of that, there are, there are certain ways that those individuals, those pre-born children, should be treated. And, and certainly, one of the most basic things that should happen in our law is they should be given the protection to actually take their first breath. And so uh, this piece by Jeremy just helps reinforce that. It gives us yet another asset for us to take uh, to a watching world and and plead for the dignity uh, of these children and uh, and so what a what a perfect week for us to to run this piece. 
And then our final piece is a call to prayer. And it's so important because uh, just because these oral arguments have been heard doesn't mean that our call to prayer is over. And also, change is not going to happen, we know, unless God changes hearts and God opens eyes and gives wisdom. And so we need Him and we want to ask Him to do that for the sake of life and for the sake of His glory and for the sake of the flourishing of those in our society. And this piece is by Andrew Wood and Laura Messick, and it's titled, A Prayer Guide in Light of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And Andrew and Laura, together, they have served the Pregnancy Center movement for over four decades. Laura is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Andrew Wood is in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. And Laura, in this piece, shares a little bit of her story as to how she got called to be involved um, in the Pregnancy Center and pro-life movement. And she shares that because she knows that in the midst of these Dobbs arguments that there are so many people, uh, believers in particular, whose hearts are going to be stirred to join this movement. And they want us to remember that as we are preparing to pray in light of Dobbs. So they give us several ways to pray, to pray for the justices, for the attorneys, for the pregnancy centers, for the unborn, for the women facing unplanned pregnancies. And they say this at the end, We don't know how God's going to answer any of these prayers, but we believe that just as David boldly stepped up to confront Goliath in his day, we are called to boldly confront abortion in America in our day. God is calling us to pray courageous prayers. Will you join us in this call to action? We are grateful for your support and are honored to serve alongside you for the work of the gospel and for life. And so I would echo that to myself, to Brent, to all of us. Will we join them in this call to action? Will we ask the Lord to help us carry this call in our hearts and carry a desire for abortion to be overturned in our country for the sake of the lives of so many and the flourishing of our society. That's all good, Lindsay. And Wednesday of this week, I had a conversation. We, we hosted a, a quick kind of online analysis between our director of public policy, Chelsea Sobolik, up in our Washington, D.C. office and, and myself uh, out in front of the Supreme Court and we were just kind of reviewing in this this interview uh, some of our takeaways uh, from the oral arguments. And look, there was a lot of attention given to those oral arguments by all kinds of legal analysts, by ourselves at the ERLC. And, and they're, without a doubt, they're an important moment. They are the most public moment before the decision happens. But uh, I use this illustration. Honestly, the oral arguments essentially represent just kind of the tip of the iceberg uh, that can be seen by those of us outside the court. Uh, now the the real work begins, and about ninety percent of it will be uh, to continue with the analogy uh, submerged. It'll be below the surface. Uh, we won't have any insight about what goes on. But just to give our audience a sense, this is now the time where the justices continue deliberating uh, based on what they heard in numerous conferences and meetings that will occur between now and uh, next summer when we anticipate the decision to be released. They're legal clerks, they're law clerks. They're going to spend countless hours researching all the various nuances of abortion jurisprudence in this country. And there's going to be all sorts of conferences. They, they will engage with all the various uh, amicus briefs, uh, the Friends of the Court briefs that were, were filed. 
with the court. So I, there, there's just so much work that is going on. And I think it is essential that us as a people who care about this issue and who are following this case, we as Christians, we, we just need to continue being in prayer for wisdom, uh, for those clerks, for those justices, uh, and for the, the truth of life in the womb to be revealed to them. Uh, because this, I mean, we, we, we keep saying this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the court, and it really is. The last real chance came in the late 80s and, and then early 90s with the Casey decision, and, and the court did not uh, really do anything there to protect preborn lives. And they now have that opportunity before them. And it's, it's an opportunity they should take. They shouldn't hesitate to do it. And they should, at a minimum, overturn Roe, overturn Casey, and return this decision back to the people. But they can go even farther and recognize the value and the inherent dignity of preborn lives and say that, you know what, the protections that we all have and that we all enjoy in the Constitution, those should be extended to this new class of people, preborn children. And they, they can go that far if they want to. But either way, there are some major decisions ahead uh, for these nine justices, and we should be praying for them. And, you know, the comfort for believers in this is that we know that the Lord holds the hearts of kings in his hands, and he can direct them where he will. And he is sovereign over this moment in our history. He is sovereign over all of history. And so he will have his way, and we can trust in him regardless of what the outcome is. But let's join together and let's pray that he would have mercy, and he would have mercy on these lives, on these judges who are making the decision on our country and ultimately on the world. You know, I, I mentioned it before, but we have a lot of other pieces on our site this week related to the issue of life and related to uh, Dobbs and this very important case. So I want to encourage you to go to our site, to check those things out, to share them with your church, with your friends, family members, those around you. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section, Brent, we've been talking about this being a big week. So give us a rundown of some of the stories. That's right. Well, and we need to start with what we have been talking about, which is this Dobbs v. Jackson uh, Women's Health Organization Supreme Court case, because it, uh, even the justices were saying in the midst of the oral arguments, this could potentially be a watershed case uh, for American jurisprudence. And that should hearten all of us who are pro-life believers and committed pro-life activists. And uh, and so that is where we're going to begin, Lindsay. And our first story comes to us from Newsweek, and it's titled Abortion Rights Advocates Alarmed as SCOTUS Signals Possible End to Roe v. Wade. And so the reporting says the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority indicated on Wednesday that it may overrule Roe v. Wade, the court's landmark decision that legalized abortion nationwide almost 50 years ago. During almost two hours of oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization on Wednesday, questions from the six conservative members of the court hinted that they were inclined to uphold a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The ruling in the Mississippi case could decide the fate of Roe, along with the decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirmed Roe in 1982. For some additional analysis, I also have an article from Axios, and the reporters there say the court heard oral arguments this morning in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, 
And the court's main abortion precedents, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, say that women have a right to an abortion until about the 24th week of pregnancy when a fetus is considered viable. Chief Justice John Roberts and his conservative colleagues all questioned whether the, quote, viability line makes sense, indicated that they're inclined to do away with that standard. And so that's true. That was something that was bandied about amongst the justices for quite a bit. And then the other reason I pulled this piece is because it went into just a little bit more detail with some additional justices. Justice Neil Gorsuch also criticized the court's undue burden standard, which prohibits abortion regulations that impose a substantial obstacle on access. Gorsuch said the standard is unworkable and difficult for courts to administer. Justice Brett Kavanaugh several times asked questions about whether the Supreme Court should remain neutral when it comes to abortion, suggesting that the issue should fall entirely to the elected branches. So, uh, you know, that gives you a little bit of a sense of what all was happening in the chamber. And uh, without a doubt, it was a monumental day. It was, I mean, frankly, it was exhilarating uh, being there surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of uh, pro-life activists uh, because, you know, we were a part of a rally uh, that happened on the the courthouse steps. And um, I mean, honestly, I I don't have a whole lot of experiences like that in my life. You know, I was I was listening to something that they were talking about the process that happens until the ruling comes down in June or July. And it's I know it's it's hard to say which way it's gonna go. Like you never know. So can you explain to us some of what that process looks like as the judges are now making a decision? Right. Well, so as I mentioned earlier, obviously there's there's a lot of research and conversation that will will go into this. But once they finally get to, and I mean, we should be clear, more than likely the justices have a pretty strong sense of of how they're going to rule. It's just a matter of where is the majority, five of them, uh, where can they get to kind of an agreement, uh, and and that might be the direction that they they want to go. And there's, you know, there's a number of uh, there's a number of factors that weigh into that. You know, Justice Sotomayor yesterday uh, was <laughs> she was certainly carrying the banner for the uh, liberal side of the bench. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, she she just kind of sucked up a lot of the oxygen in the room uh, for for that side of things. But you know, one of the one of the factors, and I know this is important to the Chief Justice John Roberts. One of the things she was talking about was was institutional integrity and, and whether the court, if it were to in fact overrule uh, Roe v. Wade, would it just become seen as a uh, political branch of the government? And honestly, I think the reason that she was surfacing that was because she was speaking to an audience at once. She was trying to make sure she was trying to get that in the head of the chief justice. But his his line of questioning, I, I got to tell you, it was, it was actually pretty encouraging. Uh, you could tell he's very engaged on this, and he is trying to surface what might be seen as, in some respects, a, a compromise. But there weren't a lot of takers on that. The other conservative justices were hammering the inconsistency of the standards that have come from Roe and Casey. So anyways, uh, they will continue uh, that dialogue behind the scenes. And then eventually they'll get to a place where five or more justices say, this is the direction that we need to go. And and then it becomes a matter of who wants to author it. I would bet 
that the chief justice, knowing that this potentially will be a watershed case, I would bet that he wants to be the one to author it. Uh, I mean, because potentially this is going to be an opinion that we talk about for generations. So it's very likely that he will do that. At the same time, you've got a number of justices uh, who uh, might be in agreement with whatever the chief justice writes, uh, but they will want to be on the record as well. And so they may they may want to distinguish uh, their perspective a little bit, or maybe they've got a particular legal nuance that they want to fully explain. Uh, those will come in the form of concurrent opinions. Uh, so we may see a few of those. And then obviously I would expect, you know, just based on Sotomayor's questions yesterday, she, she obviously, if we go in the direction of upholding Mississippi's ban or going further and completely overturning Roe, she obviously will file a dissent, a dissenting opinion in this. So yeah, all of that just little kind of inside baseball, it's fascinating uh, to political nerds like myself, but that's, uh, you know, ultimately they will make that decision and the determination will be made uh, who will write this, this opinion. And it could be a landmark decision. There's no doubt about it. It is fascinating and important work. For someone who's not a political nerd like me, it sounds exhausting. Those opinions are long. Never once have I read one, and I probably won't, even though this one will be historic. But um, I'm thankful that that we have people uh, like the justices who are involved in this important legislation. Well, moving on from the Supreme Court, there was other news this week, and one was a just terrifying uh, school shooting in Michigan where several have passed away. NBC News is reporting this. A 17-year-old student is the fourth victim to die in a shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan as murder charges were announced against the teenage suspect. The suspect, Ethan Crumbly, 15, was charged Wednesday with four counts of first-degree murder, one count of terrorism causing death, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. He is being charged as an adult and was arraigned later Wednesday. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald said at a news conference that the shooting Tuesday at Oxford High School was planned, not just an impulsive act. There's a mountain of digital evidence, videotape, social media, all digital evidence possible, and it absolutely, we are confident that we can show it was premeditation, she told reporters. And uh, I was reading somewhere else about uh, this specific charge of terrorism. And in Michigan, like many state legislatures, uh, post 9-11, they passed a new terrorism law that can be used in instances, uh, well, I'm not sure anybody envisioned an instance like this, but it can be used. And a reporter asked the Oakland County prosecutor, you know, why that particular charge? And she said, well, the way I look at it is think of those students who are sitting at home and aren't at school today, and they're trying to think to themselves, can they ever walk back through those hallways? She's like, in my mind, that is terrorism. You are making people flee from a scene and scared to ever go back there. And so she's like, I thought that was why this terrorism charge was appropriate. And, you know, moving on from from that particular point, it's just another sad chapter in these heinous shootings, but particularly these ones at schools. Uh, They are just so disturbing. And uh, culturally, it's 
you know, we're having to walk through this yet again in another community in our in our country. Yeah, and it's another reminder of how um, just sin has ravaged our hearts and our world. That teenagers would walk into a school, and if indeed it was premeditated, and kill his fellow classmates. It, it's just terrible. And in the midst of the different debates that are also going to rise during this, it just is another Again, a reminder about sin and sin's effect on us and the world, but also the mystery of man's heart. And by man, I mean mankind. And how it's often hard to tell who is going to be the one to commit this next act. You just don't know what is in the heart of man oftentimes. And it is, it's just so scary and so disheartening and there's there's videos emerging of the kids in the classroom. Just, oh, and oh. the one about the I guess it was the shooter. I don't know because I haven't looked into it. It's claiming to be a sheriff. Yeah, and the kids he was were... out. They had barricaded the door and they started kind of talking with him. And he said something like, I don't know. He, he said something like, Yeah, just open the door, bro. And you could hear one of the kids were like, Oh, he he just said, Bro, he's he's not a policeman. Like, look, we need to get out of here. And they they evacuated out of a back window. And it's just praise the Lord that somebody had that. I don't know, just quick thinking uh, and recognize that this was not a law enforcement official outside their door and, and was instead this gunman. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's awful. And, you know, as a parent, how do you not live in fear sending your kid to school? <laughs> you know, so uh, I just uh, pray for the Lord's mercy the day that these that these shootings would end. And we need to be praying for these, everyone that was involved in this, that the Lord would help heal their hearts and their minds, as I'm sure they struggle with reliving it over and over and over again. Right. Okay, well, moving on, the the first case of the Omicron COVID variant has been identified in the United States. And this comes to us from CBS News. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Health Authorities in California confirmed the first case of COVID-19 linked to the newly discovered variant Omicron in the U.S. on Wednesday saying an individual who had recently returned from South Africa tested positive for the strain. The traveler was fully vaccinated and is experiencing mild symptoms that are improving and has been self-quarantining since testing positive, the CDC said in a statement. The person's close contacts have been contacted by health authorities and tested negative. The health agency said the emergence of the variant emphasizes the importance of vaccination, boosters, and general prevention strategies needed to protect against COVID-19. Everyone five and older should get vaccinated. Boosters are recommended for everyone 18 years and older, said the CDC. So the news went around the world faster than the the variant uh, seemingly uh, last, I think it was last Friday when it was revealed. And, and so now everybody is, you know, just kind of ready for news to hit that this is in our backyard. And the reality is kind of the way that I've seen these other strains, it probably already is here. Uh, in, in many ways, it, it feels like we just don't know it yet. And honestly, I still say that the, the best way to ensure that you don't have the worst possible effects from COVID is to go get vaccinated. Yeah. And I, honestly, my reaction to this is markedly different from the first cases of COVID when it was starting to overtake our country and then the new variant and then the variant Delta. And that's because I am thankful that I am able to be vaccinated. And again, I know people have different opinions and I know somebody who had a bad response to the vaccine is still struggling with that. So I get that. 
and you have to weigh your risks and your options. But I'm just thankful that I'm not as worried about it and that I trust that these vaccines are going to be able to help protect those who have gotten them. And then also that there are also antivirals on the way. Uh, Lots more is known about the coronavirus. So it just makes me thankful for the medical personnel who have been working tirelessly to help develop these things. Okay, and our final two stories will take us overseas. This first one is from the Christian Post. Ten Christians killed by militant herdsmen in overnight raid in Nigeria and over 100 homes burned. In another brutal attack on Christians in Nigeria, heavily armed jihadist Fulani herdsmen stormed a village in Plateau State, killing 10 Christians, including children aged 4, 6, and 8, and set fire to 100 homes early Friday, according to reports. The Fulani herdsmen were dressed in black, carrying sophisticated weapons and shouting Aluha Akbar when they attacked Tagbi Village in Mayango District at about 1 a.m. on Friday, the U.S.-based persecution watchdog International Christian Concern reported. Quote, I lost my grandchildren for the sake of Christ, a survivor identified as Sibigara was quoted as saying while recovering in a hospital. Another individual who survived said, I slept outside on the street after losing six family members. Christian persecution watchdog group Open Doors USA ranks Nigeria at number nine on its 2021 World Watch list of countries where Christians face the most severe persecution. Earlier this month, the Biden administration removed Nigeria from the State Department's list of countries of particular concern, despite concerns that predominantly Christian farming communities continue to face increasing violence. And we encounter these stories routinely from other parts of the globe. And it just reminds you, man, we've got a lot of challenges uh, here in America. None of us are facing what our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in some corners of the globe. And this is just terrible. Well, and it convicts me that I I am just I don't know, other, another way to say it, a weak sauce Christian. I, I depend mm, on mm-hmm. on comforts and conveniences, and I just have such thin skin. And these believers just, I lost my grandchildren for the sake of Christ. I mean, I, I hope I would be willing to cling to Christ if I was facing that persecution. And this survivor who lost six family members, it's also convicting to me because I don't, carry these believers in my heart in prayer often enough. And I don't weep with them often enough. And I need the Lord's grace to do that because we know Christ identifies with them based on his word. And I'm thankful for the promise that as Jesus told Peter, when Peter was like, well, we've lost everything. We've left everything for your sake. You know, what are we going to get? And Jesus said, you're going to receive a hundredfold in, in the life to come. And so their promises are great in Christ. And they will receive a hundredfold, but they're walking through deep, great grief right now. And I just pray that the Lord gives us, those who have been entrusted with so much here in America, the hearts to give lavishly to them of our resources as we're able and of our prayers. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a great reminder. And, and look, you know, as Baptists, uh, who care about human dignity and international religious freedom? It's it's not just Christians who who come to mind uh, when terms of of persecution out there. Uh, just earlier today, I was on the phone uh, with someone who is Afghan, and 
he he still has family members who are in Afghanistan. Uh, he had a family member who was killed by the Taliban, and he is concerned uh, about his family members who are left there. As a matter of fact, he was evacuated out of Afghanistan, and we need to pray for the persecuted church. And honestly, we need to we need to pray for all of these instances that are out there where human dignity is being marred by terrorists or by official government. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think of what the Chinese Communist Party is, is doing to the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. And, and so, yeah, we got to be praying, y'all, uh, because uh, the, the enemy is, is doing terrible things out there. All right, and our final story comes to us from uh, the news agency France 24 over in Paris. And this one is about, uh, the reason I'm bringing this one up is because probably many of the folks in our audience know about the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, over in Paris. Probably many folks have uh, have visited it. Uh, well, there's an update. Uh, to what is going on. Remember, there was a giant fire that nearly took down the entire structure. Uh, and thankfully, firefighters were, were able to salvage it. Well, it's being put back together. And uh, now some of the uh, elements of its new design internally are surfacing publicly. And that has caused a little bit of a, a little bit of a stir out there, if you will. So uh, Notre Dame in Paris denies that its redesign is too radical. Plans to replace the gothic ambiance of Notre Dame Cathedral with a softer vibe of modern art and warm lighting have raised a few eyebrows, but the priest in charge denies any radical transformation is afoot. With the cathedral set to reopen in 2024, five years after a fire devastated much of its roof and spire, church authorities are putting forward new plans on December 9th for how the public will experience the iconic Parisian landmark. They include Bible quotes to be projected in multiple languages on the walls and new art installations in place of its little-used 19th-century confessionals, said Father Druin, who is charged with reworking the interior in an interview with AFP. Gone would be the traditional straw chairs to be replaced by more comfortable benches with their own little lamps to brighten the gloom, perhaps even able to disappear into the floor when not in use to leave more room for tourists. Well, so I'm thankful that eventually the cathedral will reopen. I I, I guess I need to see this visually, uh, what they are planning. So there were some other outlets that were reporting and uh, someone said it was going to be like Walt Disney World comes to Notre Dame. I, I don't know if that's exactly the vibe I would be looking for <laughs> when I walk into such a historic facility. But uh Seems like to be like a bit of an exaggeration. I haven't seen them, but I can't imagine that they would. Yeah, they would design something that's like Walt Disney World comes to no, Notre Dame. Yes. Well, and I'm also going to try and figure out how exactly are bench pews going to be more comfortable than straw chairs? I, I'm straw. What What are straw chairs? I don't know. Is what but I straw chairs know. seem seem to me like they would actually be pretty comfortable. I'd, is it like a bale of hay or Maybe. what is a straw chair? I'm not I, sure. I've sat, I've sat in some some wooden pews in my time, uh, visited some, you know, high church, uh, Southern Baptist churches with, with they, some— yes, They <laughs> are hard on the dairy. They, they are a bit hard. And so to me, straw feels like that might be rather inviting uh, to, to— I 
Along that line, I have I visited in a historic uh, opera house when I went to Prague, actually, which was so fun. Going to Prague was fun. Going to an opera was not fun. I'm sorry, I'm not cultured enough. The only thing that kept me awake and interested were the snacks that I brought along with me. But those there's no food and drink allowed in most opera houses. Well, particularly in Prague, I probably smuggled them in my purse, which yeah. is fine because. People falling asleep in the opera houses. Well, I now know why. Because number one, it is boring. Number two, the seats were so uncomfortable. Number three, it is warm. So all of those things combined, the only way I stayed awake was because of the snacks I smuggled. Because you had some skills. I had actually European cookies because I love their cookies and stuff, like going to the grocery and getting them. You know the people sitting around you, they were judging you for your... American lack of class by bringing your European cookies in. No, I was very, um, I was very, is the word inconspicuous or conspicuous? I I always (laughs) mess those up. (laughs) Whatever the word is, is discreet. I was very discreet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, inconspicuous. There you go. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. I was very inconspicuous and discreet, and I will not go to another opera again. You know, I've worked with you all of us now for five years. Uh, one word to describe you would not be discreet. I, I would not. I would not choose the word discreet to describe you. That's because all the things that I don't want you to know about, I've been discreet about, <laughs> and you've never seen them. <laughs> so anyway, let's hope Notre Dame is is not the new Disney World of France. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, Lindsay, that's your look at this week in culture. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what do you have? So to continue with my uh, theme this week of my uh, high nerdery, because I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my nerdery when it comes out. I'm going to talk about C-SPAN. Do you know what C-SPAN is? Do you know what C-SPAN stands for, Lindsay? No. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think you would. It stands for the Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network. And it is in a, this comes to us from uh, Wikipedia. Thought it was a good, pithy description. C SPAN is an American cable and satellite television network that was created in 1979 by the cable television industry as a nonprofit public service. It televises many proceedings of the United States federal government as well as other public affairs programming. And the reason I bring that up, joyful listeners, is because I was listening to uh, the oral arguments of the Supreme Court on the C-SPAN app. And I just am so thankful for the folks at C-SPAN. I've always wanted to be on C-SPAN. I've, I've never never gotten mm. that, but hopefully someday. You still have dreams. But e- either way, C-SPAN, I think, is just a, a great tool. It, it keeps you, or it allows you to stay informed about what all is going in, on in Washington. So if there's a floor debate, in the U.S. House, there's a committee meeting in the Senate, or if there is, honestly, just a a noteworthy discussion that's happening in one of the many think tanks around Washington, oftentimes C-SPAN is there. And I love to just turn it on, have it on in the background, or, or like I said, listen to it on my phone for things as important as Supreme Court oral arguments. So if, if you want to join me, Lindsay, or anyone who might be listening to this, if you want to join me in the high castle of nerddom, please 
download the C-SPAN app or turn it on your local cable television provider. Mm. You're the height. That is the height of nerdery for you. So I'm glad there are people who like C-SPAN, but mm-mm. no, no. So I've talked about it before, but if you need Christmas music recommendations, Christy Knuckles' album, A Thrill of Hope, is so good and so rich. And then Sovereign Grace Music has an album, Prepare Him Room, that I had forgotten about that I actually own that is really great as well. And also I wanted to tell you, you know, I had told y'all how Marion had, my daughter had put aquaphor in her hair, which is like Vaseline. It took a while to get out and she looked like a greaser from from the movie Grease. And she had put it on, she's ruined her blankets essentially because now there are like those grease stains on her blankets. But then a friend sent me a story of these two little girls who had covered their hair in desitin, which is white, and like matted in their hair because they wanted to look like Elsa from Frozen. And it took the mom five days to get this stuff out of their hair. Had to comb it. She had to use cornstarch and baby oil, something about oil, taking oil out of hair or something. Five days to get that stuff out of her daughter's hair. So it made me, uh, you have to see the picture, so we'll put that in the show notes. But it made me realize that, you know what? Our situation was not that bad because five days worth of cornstarch and baby oil does not sound like, oh, and Dawn dish soap because that fixes everything, does not sound like a fun use of my time. No. No, it doesn't. Desitin in your hair? Isn't des- what is desitin again? It's diaper rash cream. Diaper rash, Same yeah. with aquaphor. I mean, it's used for that. Tell me a crazy story about one of your kids. No. Why not? Uh, my kids aren't crazy. That's not true. My kids, my kids are angels. That is not true. I mean, your kids are awesome, but I know for sure that your son has got some stories. How do you know that? Because Meredith sometimes posts them on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knocks over grocery carts. He does knock over grocery carts. Yeah. Mercy. Uh, Children. But they're so fun. Where would we be without them? Exactly. Exactly. And the good Lord uh, helps us to have uh, selective amnesia about the challenging times. That's right. Uh, to, to fully enjoy the blessing that are children. Yes, they are a blessing. And that's a good place to end this lunchroom. Just a reminder, you can find links to all of the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And in addition to listening to this podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.